You are listening to Stories from Real Life, a podcast by engaging storytellers for engaged story listeners. Here's your host, author and journalist, Melvin E. Edwards. Welcome to this edition of Stories from Real Life. I'm your host, Melvin E. Edwards, and I'm joined on today's storytelling journey by a young man with a lot to say. Joe Ignis is the youngest person I've had as a guest so far at 26 years old, and I'm curious to hear what he can teach us older guys. Joe, thank you for joining me on the Stories from Real Life podcast. Yeah, hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right, before we go any further, I want to give you a chance to tell my audience why they should consider you an expert on the topics you will discuss today. Who is Joe Ignis? Yeah, um, <laughs> thanks for asking. Yeah, um, I, the reason you should be listening to me is that um, I've almost always been the youngest person in the room, and that's never stopped me from being um, in the top 1% of people who <laughs> are, are much older uh, and have, have what I would call lots of wisdom. And I think one of the things that I bring to the table is uh, um, an inspiring story and an inspiring mission to change the world for the better. And instead of talking about, you know, uh, in my book and all the different things that I do, how, how can you make the most money or all this stuff about quote unquote financial success, I talk about um, the success of impact and how we can um, utilize all of our strengths, which we all have, and utilize our potential to help others. That sounds good. So let's get started. So I want to spend most of our time talking about the themes in your brand new book, The Problem with Potential. First of all, congratulations on writing your first book. I'm, I'm sure this will be the first of many for you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, I've, uh, it took me about 22 months. Uh, I've got about 43 different psychological studies and historical events in the book um, to back up all the different concepts that um, I, I learned from uh, selling books door to door 80 hours a week for seven years and being a district sales leader when I was 24 um, years old, running a um, $1.3 million sales group of college students who used to be uh, students who made 30, 40 grand in the summers and um, even uh, include stories and and, and things that have helped me had uh, I had my best summer ever um, during COVID when everyone thought that door-to-door sales would probably die. Uh, and that was a summer where I built a personal sales business of two hundred over $200,000 in 11 weeks. Nice. Nice. All right. So from what perspective is potential creating a problem for people? And, and in what perspective is it creating a problem? And for whom is that a problem? Yeah, so so the problem with potential is a little play on words here. So this is this is this is fun. Um, I was laying in my bed um, trying to decide a title for this book. So the way I started to write, which I would not recommend, and I'm going to come to the answer to this question here in a second. Uh, I would not recommend the way I wrote this book. It was mostly I was, was mentoring a lot of college students at the time. I was working with a lot of sales leaders, and there was just these consistent you know sort of questions or um, problems that were coming up in their life that essentially had the potential to ruin their life if they didn't confront them head on. And I saw that they had a lot of, these people had a lot of potential, um, but they were, again, they were allowing these problems to stop them from reaching their potential. Um, And so, you know, I I just kind of threw out 40,000 words on a document um, over a couple weeks. And and then I I was thinking about what's the heck, what's the point of this book? And I was uh, trying to sleep and I came up with, there was like a hundred titles came to me and um, one of them was the problem with potential. And then that whole concept, you know, materialized out of the the YouTube and the podcast um, that I was currently doing at the time that I still do um, for business owners um, now. And that's, that's where it all came from. So we all have these problems inside us. And I think, um, Matthew McConaughey in his book, Green Lights, I was listening to that uh, a couple summers ago, and he talks about in in one of his good speeches to uh, college students how you've got um, two wolves inside of you and you've got one good one, one bad one. And, you know, whichever one you feed the most is the one that's going to win. And so these problems, you know, are these inherent things of, um, you know, selfishness and um, wanting to avoid pain and, um, you know, wanting to um, just, just not 
go through what it takes to reach our potential because of whatever we've convinced ourselves. And, and usually the, the culprit is our own minds. Um, and I have a chapter in the book called The Cynic Within. And we all get this little voice in the, on our, our shoulder that just says, you can't do that. There's no way. You're not good enough. You won't, you won't amount to anything. Why waste your time? Be comfortable. That's probably the most uh, confusing thing you can hear is be comfortable. You know, um, from that voice, I think that's uh, something sometimes people make the goal of comfort and I think it uh, limits our potential. So that's kind of the idea. So the problem with potential is we've got, a, we've got these problems and they're holding us back from potential. We need to reach our potential because the world needs help and people needs help. Um, and I think that we stop pursuing our best when we start pursuing ourselves. And so what we want to do is say, hey, you know what? Um, if, my if reaching my potential will help others, I ought to go through whatever pain it takes to reach that potential and then go give it back, pay it forward, and help a lot of people. Um, I also think that uh, you know, potential as a, as a young person is thrown around as a compliment. Um, but once you you know, I, I have no arbitrary number for the age, but you know when um, you've kind of given up on some of those dreams and goals that you know would be make an impact um, that you really wish you could do. Um, when, when you're told you have potential after that point, right, then to me it's an insult. You've never realized it. Hmm. Wow. A lot to digest already, and we just got started. We're five minutes into this. <laughs> I talked right, to so you. <laughs> you you have a short list of traps that we can set for ourselves, and then fall into those traps. And from what I can see, the traps that you lay out in the book are sort of along these lines: internal barriers, self-limiting beliefs, and then defining true potential. So. Um, and you also offer some advice on um, living a practical life. So let's focus on these things one at a time. Sure. First, confronting cool. internal barriers. How do you define that? So, you know, um, internal barriers in general, I, you know, I, I just anything within yourself um, that you've conditioned yourself to believe is something that is or is impossible. So, for example, there's a there's a study in the book um, that some may hear about um, or have heard about. It's called the Sandflea Experiment. It's conducted. I can't recall the actual date. You'll have to read the book for that. Um, <laughs> so I'm not going to say one. Um, and the idea is that you put these fleas in a jar, and, and scientists were doing this for multiple weeks in the jars, let's say six inches, and I believe a flea can jump something like 19 inches or like three yards or something wild. They can, they can really jump very far, five feet, I can't recall. And um, after about three weeks of conditioning of the, the flea hitting the jar, hitting their head, um, they are let out of the jar and they never jump higher than six inches or further than six inches the rest of their life. And to me, that very much reflects human beings because I used to recruit people to go sell books door to door. Now, I know that sounds really fun and like a job everyone wants, um, but I would meet people who were more charismatic than me when I first sold books. When I first sold books, we sold educational books with a company called Southwestern. I was, I think, the worst salesperson my first two weeks in my entire group. I was bad at it. Um, you know, growing up, I was the kind of kid, like, I grew up, I was homeschooled. That probably had something to do with some shyness. And then, uh, although I love being homeschooled, I'm very analytical. So I, you know, devote that, you know, I enjoyed learning. So, but I had five brothers, sisters, you know, I always fit in with them. But when I went outside, you know, as a younger middle school or high school, student, you know, it's like fitting in was always hard, you know. Um, and would I say my communication skills were good? It's like, sure, you know, many of the things I, I, I'd grown accustomed to communicating and I, I maybe did some speeches and stuff, but like finding, you know, great long-term, you know, relationships, connections was always difficult for me, empathy, things like that. I was always driven and hardworking. And so um, doing the sales was like, well, I could go work hard, but um, there was a big learning curve when it came to the communication uh, aspect of actually selling. And so, you know, um, I ended up being number one in the group. And so when I'd meet uh, people who were more, are more charismatic naturally, you know, who would be better at the job because, you know, maybe they just get human behavior better than I did. And then I see themselves talk themselves out of doing something that would they themselves have, say would be way better than working a part-time job, <laughs> you know, um, then, then that right there is where that fear, those limiting beliefs of not believing in what's possible, right? Um, there's a study in the book that 
you know, states that 80% of people or so, this is based on a survey, you know, may have changed since then, but 80% of people um, don't like their jobs. You know, they don't prefer what they do. Um, and what's really interesting is when you do the math, we spend 33% of our uh, lives time working a job. And so 80% of people are sacrificing 33% of their lives doing things they don't enjoy. The other 33% of time, or at least one other third, is, is spent sleeping. And so that means half of our waking moments, 80% of people aren't enjoying what they're doing. And the question that, that I wanted to solve for people is like, why is that? Why would we? Why would we do things that we don't enjoy doing all the time? Now, there's there's some credence to you got to get stuff done and you got to do hard stuff and you always have to and, and and I think that's part of it. But to find something that feels purposeless, you know, and that's what it come down what it came down to is if I I believe that if you don't enjoy what you're doing, it's not because what you you're doing is inherently bad. It's because you may not see the purpose long term, may not have purpose for what you're doing, and so at the end of the day, it's not the job. It's it's you. It's purpose. If you haven't gone through and said, who am I? What am I doing here? Why should I care about anything? And, and people haven't confronted that, that question of, um, does, does what I do matter? And I think that's really hard for people. And it, it's because if you, if you say, Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot on his podcast, but if you say that what I do matters, it forces you to start taking responsibility for every action you do. And you say, okay, everything I do is a positive or negative influence on others. And it forces you to stop being, you know, um, ha you know, carrying some of those negative problems. And I think a lot of people think that what they do doesn't matter. And that breaks my heart. And that's really why I wrote the book. Um, at the end of the day, I want people to know that what they do really does matter. And it doesn't matter if you're 50. It doesn't matter if you're 20. It doesn't matter if you're 75. There's things that you can do that's vitally important. There's strengths that you have that others don't and they need. And that's chapter two of actually why we need you to reach your potential. Um, it has a lot to do with the fact that if you are, have, again, any talent, like the world needs it, like they do. There's 83% of people born um, without access to healthcare, education, and like um, consistent nutrition. So if you have that, you probably have something to give. And I still, th and what's amazing, and there's in that 83% of people, <laughs> there's still people who are giving and making big waves and impact with, with less, you know, and that's because it's purpose. It comes down to what am I trying to live for and what's driving me. And uh, I, I hope that the book for everyone who reads it can help them open up their mind to, instead of, I think the, the Americanized, how can I get everything for myself and, you know, consumerism and more of how can I help others? And I think when you focus on helping others, for example, um, everything else becomes easy. You'll do the hard stuff. The hard stuff becomes simple. Okay. So how do you overcome self-limiting beliefs? So, so how you overcome it is action. That's like the bottom line. I put that word probably in the book 100, 200, 300 times that, that word action's in there. And so, you know, you never, you're never going to solve the world's problems by thinking about them. And you're never going to solve your problems by thinking about them. And people try to solve their problems by thinking about them. I know people who read 30 books a year and they don't apply it. I'd rather you read one book and apply everything in the book and then read another book next year. Or read the same book twice and try to apply all of the concepts. You know, it's, it's really that simple. I, so I, I consult and, and work with a lot of business owners, you know, and again, it just comes down to focus, right? Focus, application. I, I, I work with some people and they're lovely people and they train others on a concept called time blocking, which is a concept actually in the book in, in chapter one, uh, we talk about getting your goals on paper and then getting your goals into your schedule. And uh, it, as it turns out, most people, even the people who teach that, allow their schedule to be um, controlled by urgent emergencies all the time and they never actually focus on things that actually matter to them. And their goal instead of being in their schedule so they can be accomplished, become hidden away in a drawer somewhere on a piece of paper. And then we look back and the goals are gone. And so it's all action, right? Whatever limiting belief, it's, if it's the sand flea and you, you don't believe you can jump higher than six inches, well, go jump higher than six inches and, and more importantly, find somebody who's already done it. Um, there's a, I, I talk about in the book, um, there's a, um, um, Back when the, the world record, I think it was like four minute mile, the four minute mile was broken in the 50s or 60s, you know, I don't actually recall the dates, but it's in there. No one thought it was possible to break four minutes on a mile. 
for you know however many thousands of years you know and hundreds of years of the olympics or whatever at this point right getting back to the greeks i would assume and no one believed it and then one person did it and then nine people did it within like three months hmm. and it's just that's that's the belief it's just we don't think it's possible so we don't try you know so psychologically if we don't think it's possible we put in less effort and we put in less effort we're less successful there's this thing called the pygmalion effect um and the idea is that our external um, experiences, right, determine our internal thoughts if we allow them to, right? And then what other people's beliefs about us will also determine what we believe is possible and what we believe is possible for ourselves. So, for example, um, if, you're, if you're seven and you're learning math and you make a mistake on a test and then outwardly people laugh at you or the teacher said wow you're bad at math and you start hearing this negative uh, stimulus right then you will internalize that i'm bad at math the next time you're supposed to study for math you don't want to study for math because you think you're bad at it therefore you do not study for math melvin what happens when you go take math tests with you didn't study you're not going to do well you're going to be at least appear to be bad at math <laughs> It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's called the Gollum effect. And so people do that. I mean, it's actually really common for people to degrade themselves, tell themselves they're not good at things. Math being something that you hear all the time in, in a group of people because they think that it, it makes them fit in. And to me, that's heartbreaking because it's like, you know, anyone can learn how to do math. You know, maybe there are people who are obviously talented at math, but at the end of the day, it's it becomes a process right anyone can learn pretty much anything right now i'm not saying you should learn everything in fact i, I have a, a, a subtitle in the book called um you can do anything but you should but you can't do everything and figuring out <laughs> what you should do is based on your values and purpose right so don't you, if you don't want to be great at math that's fine but don't believe that you can't you know so so i believe that that pygmalion effect happens a lot of times and so um one way is obviously through action another way is finding a good group of friends so there's a chapter called the hierarchy of friendships and so um, i believe that people stick around with who's comfortable and not who's impactful and i know because i've done it before too i remember my uh second semester second year of college sophomore coming back from selling books and being a a, a 24th in the world rookie and i went to live with uh four or five roommates guys from my dorm room you know off campus and uh i remember it being um a semester that was fun but i was living with a bunch of guys who didn't have the same values with me i remember about two or three months in i was pretty much doing a lot of things that just didn't line up with who i wanted to be um where i wanted to go in life especially as a christian and so um i remember you know, looking back and, and it was all my decisions, you know, I'm no victim, but we do become the average of our five closest friends. Jim Rohn said that. And so, you know, the group I was living with, it was just more of a party culture thing. And it was distracting me from what I really cared about, which was impacting people. And so um, I, I would then not be at the apartment from about 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day, I would just go be productive and do other things. And I got a lot more done, and I ended up being the number one second-year salesperson the next summer, for example. And um, it's amazing how, who you spend time with. You know, I, I, I got so down on myself. I remember one month, it was like, I was like addicted to my phone because I just was trying to run away from some of those problems I wasn't confronting about how I was unhappy with my life at the time. You know, and again, I think just who we surround ourselves makes a difference. Absolutely. There's, there's no question about that. You, you look yeah. like you're about so, to say something else. Yeah. So, so action cures fear. Find good friends, right, with similar values, and that will solve that as well. And then just understand what's happening in your brain. Um, another study that was done, it, it, it was to figure out why do we you know, think more negatively than positively. So on average, um, your brain is self-defense mechanism, right? Your brain, is this, so your brain wants you to live right? Which makes sense. Great. Thank you, brain. I appreciate that. <laughs> right. Um, but the way that it helps you live and survive is when you have a negative experience, you stub your toe, you get publicly ridiculed, right? Your brain's like, I need to avoid that because, you know, if I don't fit into the herd, right, then I get excommunicated from the hood, herd and I die in the wild. That's sort of what it's doing. Um, same thing. If I stub my toe, I need to not do that thing again. And so what happens is it develops fear, 
right? Avoid the pain. And then we start remembering negative events more often than positive ones. No matter how positive the event, we will always remember negative events more often. So you have to actually train your brain um, through self-talk, through affirmations, which are some exercises that you can do um, to control your thoughts, right? To help yourself remember um, what you're grateful for, for example. It's amazing how one bad thing in a moment can make you think the world is ending and the sky is falling. Hashtag chicken little, right? Um, and, <laughs> you know, and, and in reality, you have a good life and many things to be grateful for and people who probably care about you, you know, most of the time, right? It's like, that's, we got to have that perspective and control our thoughts. So, um, but if you understand, obviously, that you're more negative, it's, you, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just the way your brain works. And you can say, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. It's just my brain. It's just, it's just the way that I was designed. Gotcha. Let's take a deep breath and, and try to work through it, right? I think those would be three simple things that you could do. Okay. And unlocking your true potential. How do, how do you, how do you encourage people to do that? Yeah. I, so true. I think the true potential comes down to this. I, I think there's two things to figure out. Like, um, when you're thinking about, man, what, what kind of impact can I have on this planet? You know? And, you know, I think, I think one of them is just, um, discovering something you're passionate about. You know, discovering something you're passionate about, something, and and I would I would say finding the purpose. You know, of what 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 are your talents and strengths? You know, um, and, and how could you basically solve problems? So if you know who you are, so if you go in um, and figure out what what do I believe, who am I, what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses, what drives me, what motivates me, all of these types of questions that I think people often don't ask. Um, if you know the answers to this. And you can start looking around the world and, and searching for problems that you could solve. And so if you see a problem, like, like my wife's a social worker. So, you know, she has done a lot of stuff. She's done CPS. Man, she's seen some wild stuff in CPS. She's seen some wild stuff um, through some of the different jobs that she has. Just like, And that just breaks her heart to no end. And she's so motivated. Like, I, I think on a Sunday she had to get called in. And she was there for like eight hours, you know, but it was these little kids. And, um, she was just overjoyed to help, overjoyed to help. And, you know, yeah, it's not ideal. Are we supposed to spend time like as a family, whatever, you know, but, but I support it because it's, it's her passion mission and she wants to change the world in that way. And she never gets tired. I mean, she gets tired, but she never gets tired of the sacrifice. You know, she knows who she is. She's encouraging. She's amazing with kids. She's such a motherly woman. She's so kind. I mean, this is when we were dating, she skipped church, um, you know, which, you know, some people might think is a no-no, but she skipped church. She bailed on me because it was raining and she saw a guy from her college who didn't have a car and didn't have a bike and he was walking in the rain to his job at Food City and he dropped her off. She dropped him off and uh, got him a bike the next day and, and did stuff like that. It was the best, it was the best reason. I wish I would have skipped church too, you know? It's like, <laughs> living it out. Like the woman's just amazing, right? And so she's got this, she's got this, kind. she knows who she is. She's kind and she wants to help people and she's, she's good at encouraging and she's good at, at nurture, right? And that's great, you know? And she, and that's what she wants to do. Um, you know, myself, uh, I told you at the beginning, the empathy thing, you know, right? I've worked on it. I'm great. I'm, I'm good at leadership. I lead teams. I've led teams of 35 salespeople and motivated and things like that. But, you know, the nurturing, um, I'm encouraging all the time. It's one of my top strengths is being relentlessly encouraging and seeing um, people for who they can become and not for who they are. That I'm good at that. Uh, but I'm also kind of a tough love. Like, hey, like, it's going to get better. You're probably going to suck at first, right? Like, things like that, you know? So, and so my, my mind's, um, I have an accounting degree and, you know, like numbers and it, it works in like processes and, and, and I'm good at, I'm frankly just good at making money and stuff. So like I go the business route because I enjoy it. I enjoy it. It's a puzzle to me. And I believe with my business, we help small business owners. So I believe if I help small business owners, they're the people who give back to charity a lot. They're the people who do things in the local community. That's why I like to work with those types of people. You know, that gets me excited. If I can help those people be successful, they're going to help a lot of people because salespeople meet more people than anybody else. 
So that's how it kind of lines up with vision, the mission, the values. If I go speak and, you know, um, and write a book, right, you can, you can impact more lives. That's kind of the idea. So whatever your, whatever your, your strengths are, you don't have to be up in front of everybody. You can be a behind the scenes person. In fact, um, there's a concept in the book called the butterfly effect, which uh, hopefully a lot of people heard of. If you haven't, it's this idea that small things like a little butterfly flapping its wings um, can make a little tiny air current. And those air currents can add to all the other butterfly wing flaps, right? And you have this big air current that turns into a cloud, that turns into rain, that turns into a hurricane, <laughs> you know? And uh, it's all connected, right? And, uh, you know, there's this guy named Edward Kimball that no one's ever heard of, but he was a little small time pastor in a small town. Um, and he swerves into the shoe salesman shop and on his way to church, you know, one day after passing the, the shoe salesman like a hundred times, invites him to church, guy ends up becoming Christian. And then he goes and starts speaking, meets Eli Moody. Um, and then Moody goes and, and he evangelizes Eli Moody and Moody goes to the United Kingdom and he starts speaking and evangelizing and going all over the place preaching. And he meets another guy um, who becomes a preacher and goes back to the United States and it becomes this train. And if you keep going down this sort of line, you know, this lineage of, you know, uh, Christianity in this specific case, it becomes this one guy doing a small little session, like a small group for like not even a hundred people. And uh, this guy named Billy Graham walks in at 17 and um, Edward Kimball never talks to the shoe salesman. Billy Graham never becomes uh, a speaker to millions. And no one knows who Edward Kimball is. But I would argue that he had just as much impact as Billy Graham. And I just think that's so important for people here. Absolutely. There's no question. Everybody's got an impact. Everybody's got a role to play. No role too small. So you call yourself a serial entrepreneur. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. How do you decide when to try something new? And then when do you decide it's time to move on and try something else? Yes, that's a good, that's a great question. Um, so a little backstory here, right? So I did the, I did the book thing for seven years and there's a million stories. I think we're going to talk about a tire store maybe today. That'd be fun. Don't <laughs> let me forget about that. I think we're going to hit some good stories there. So we'll come back to that. But uh, basically um, last October, you know, October, 2023 um, ended up 2022, excuse me, ended up leaving that job as a district sales leader. I wanted to be home a little bit more, travel a bit less, um, wanted to go to church some more. You know, I had two years into marriage and all that kind of stuff. And so um, my friends and I uh, had started a fitness um, company. And so we were doing fitness coaching and meal plans online. We sold through Instagram and, and content marketing. Did that for a while. And you know, um, that was, that was just touching on some new entrepreneurial things. And the reason I ended up moving on past that is just because, uh, I had some partners and, you know, partnerships are hard and it was all online. And so, you know, as I think as you learn about what you enjoy, if you're an entrepreneur and you're good at it and you can kind of make stuff happen, then, um, you don't have to be in one place if you don't like it. So I just end up not enjoying the lifestyle. So I think for me, if I don't enjoy the lifestyle, you know, how can I package this, sell it or package this, make it a system and step away um, based on lifestyle? Um, that That's sort of how I do it. Now I'm, I'm doing something that I love. I, I go speak a lot I, uh, at, at businesses like real estate companies and, you know, inspire people who are kind of like me. I've never had a salary job. So it's all all been commissioned for me my entire life up to this point. And uh, I love inspiring people who want to be in charge of their own destiny. I just think those people are, are powerful. They're impactful. They're people who want to make a difference. They're not trying to be in the mold, you know? So I do that now. Um, I think there's, you know, if you want to get into the number side of things, there's some ROI. You know, when I, when I have this company, we've done a lot of different services and tested them out. Um, and, you know, you figure out how much you feel like your time is worth, you know, based on how much you'd like to make in a year. And um, if, if you don't, if the time investment doesn't make sense, you don't do it, <laughs> which I think is hard for people. There's ways to make money, but there's 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 ways to uh, make less money per hour um, if you're not smart about how you want to do it. So, you know, how do I move on from a service? I just, I do the service, best of my ability, see what the results are, see if people like it. If they like it, then we go down and we look at, okay, how much time did it take me? What's the best? And we just, we fine tuned it to, you know, now what we do, which is coaching, um, whether it's sales, recruiting, systems, marketing, 
and then having services to leverage the business owner's time, which would be YouTube and automation and social media marketing services. So um, I think it's a, you throw everything up on a wall to see what sticks and then you go after the ones that are the best. Um, and I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of switching it up until it's the right time. I think there's a lot of people who have many small businesses um, but I'm a big fan of Alex Hormozzi, how he says it's better to have one $100 million roofing company than 10 different $1 million companies. Okay. All right, so here's the big question. This You sort of touched on it just a moment ago. So one question I ask all my guests. This sure. podcast is called Real Life and Other Fantasies. So what's the one thing that's happened, to, that's actually happened to you that would be the most unbelievable to those who didn't witness it? Yeah, man, I, you know, there's so many little stories. So maybe I might have to hit a couple, but I'll, I'll hit one that we texted about. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but this is, this is such a, it's a full circle story, really. Um, I was in Dallas Worth or Dallas Fort Worth area in a small town um, outside of Denton called Crum. I, I assume you know where Denton is out there in Texas. I do. Right? It, yeah. I, I called that South, South Oklahoma. <laughs> of course, I called Dallas, South Oklahoma, South Oklahoma yeah. too. <laughs> I do. That's awesome. Um, so I was living in Flower so. Mound. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so I was living in Flower Mound, and it was probably week three or four or five of my first summer, somewhere around there. And uh, I had a friend named Brian Coaches Fahani um, that was working with me, and he's he's such a stellar dude. And he was a walker at the time. We were both freshmen at the University of Tennessee. That's where we went to school. We we're in the business college, and um, you know there was there was basically at the very beginning of the summer. You know, he was selling, I was selling. I was working with the manager, and. Um, I, I tell the story a lot. It's actually in my book. It's one of it's one of the moments where, as a young person, you really get face to face with your values in a in a situation where it's really tempting to give up in a moment where you're right about to strike gold. If that makes sense. And so, I remember um, I was 18. I, I convinced my dad, you know, to go do this internship, right? And, he, and I convinced him I needed a car because I was gonna. I wanted to work some country areas and yada yada, and I didn't want to walk around all day <laughs> and all that kind of stuff selling. And so I convinced him to buy a car. I told him I was going to pay him back for the car at the end of the summer. I told him I was going to be successful. So I was all in on this thing. I wasn't going to give up, and um, you know, I didn't have a ton of money at the beginning. I was a freshman, um, it, you know, obviously in school, and we had five. Five, six kids total, five siblings. Three of us were in college simultaneously. So um, my, my dad uh, lovingly got our books and the rest of it was on our scholarships and how much money we wanted to make and all that kind of stuff, which is, which I think is great. I, I honestly think that was one of the best decisions he could ever uh, have done for us. It, it, it creates some self-reliance. And so you know, I go into that summer and it's a few, it, you know, this particular story is two weeks after training. You know, you go to this big training school in, in Nashville and it's really motivational and you've got these keynote speakers and, you know, you're learning all of these sales techniques because you don't know anything really going into this. You're a college student. You've never done sales. Oh. And so you, it's, it's like a boot camp and you're like waking up at 629 in the morning. You're popping out of bed. You're taking this cold shower. You get to breakfast in 20 minutes. You're reading a positive book, practicing your sales conversation. And you do that all day. You know, you're like running around sweating. It's hot, you know, 80, 90 degrees in Nashville. And then they're just preparing you for the real thing. You go out in Dallas, it's 100 degrees. And you wish you were at sales school, you know. <laughs> um, but you're running that schedule, right? You're waking up, you're eating, you're reading, you're going after it. You're going 12, 13, 14 hours a day sometimes. And then you get home, shower, you eat something, and you're reading your sales talk before you go to bed so you can do better the next day. And so that second week, you know, I wasn't great at selling it. I wasn't selling a lot. And so I had a, a friend of mine, uh, Zach Slaybaugh, come follow me. And um, he's an incredible sales guy now. He does um, business development at some really massive companies. He was a VP, one of the youngest VPs of all time in a big, um, you know, um, like, like um, benefits company and worked with, you know, Fortune 500 companies now. So he's just a stellar guy. And so he was teaching me how to sell. And so I was, he was watching me and, you know, I remember pulling into a, um, uh, a little parking lot of a, of a double wide 
wide trailer, you know, go knock on the door and I get out and knock on the door and they don't answer. And, um, this, this particular property has a green fence, um, surrounding it. And, you know, they have the little opening, a little cattle fence, right. For the, for the driveway over a little ditch. And so I said, you know what? Okay. We're getting in the cars. Like I gotta be quick and I want to impress this guy. You know, I'm a young guy. And so I whip it into uh, reverse and instead of turning around before going through the cattle gate, I decided I was a good enough driver to just hit the, hit the gas and whip it out of there and look really cool. So I do that. And, uh, I, I destroy the left side of my, uh, my car all the way up to the first, to the driver's side window. I scraped the side of it and, um, my car was purple and the, the paint was lime green. <laughs> I, I pull back and, you know, you're hearing this screech and you start hearing a noise like, and that was the tire. So I popped the tire too. I immediately change gears, pull forward as fast as I can, which damages it more while the tire had air. Um, but I got out at least. And then the tire kind of pops. Um, and I get out and, and I was like, wow. And, and the pressure in my mind was, I don't have the money for this car. I don't have money for a tire. I've made very few sales. I'm a thousand miles from home. I told my dad I'd pay him back for this. This is literally the worst case scenario that ever could have happened. You know, obviously way worse things that could have happened, but that's how I was thinking at the moment. <laughs> Zach gets out, he's smiling. You know, these guys, when I was a rookie, it was like they were six, seven summers selling books door to door, you know, and they were just always happy. And I was like, what is... What is that? Like, what is, what is, how in the world? And, uh, but I was so frustrated and angry. And, um, he asked me if I knew how to change a tire and I didn't. So I tried to change the tire. Um, um, I had like a little tire iron. He was showing me how to do it. We didn't have a jack. We had to go knock on the door to ask for a jack. <laughs> we were broken down in your driveway. Can we use a jack? You know, they're really quick to answer the door that time. Um, so we, we jack it up and he teaches me how to do this um, for the very first time and it's hard and I'm no good at it, whatever. And we eventually put on the donut. Well, um, he says, hey, let's just keep going for a little bit. It's a neighborhood. You don't have to drive a lot. And so I just kept going and, um, you know, I'd approach doors like pretty upset, you know, just imagine frowning uh, person kind of uh, in the doldrums, right? Knocking on your door and uh, what would your reaction be? And the, the, you know, the reactions weren't great and no one cared that I had popped my tire. No one knew that I popped my tire and they were just thinking about, of course, themselves, their lives, because that one life is already so much to worry about. And uh, I didn't get a lot of good reactions. So, so those next two hours sucked. And he said, hey, well, I have got to go follow another rookie. And so I'm driving him back to his car you know, contemplating why I'm out here in the middle of nowhere, Texas, selling um, this stuff to people who don't care, you know, all the things. And he, he then tells me a story. He says, hey, you know, man, I want to tell you about my best week ever. Um, you know, uh, it's, it, it's a crazy story. Um, and I think it'll help you. And he's like, okay, I'm listening. And he says, well, on my best week ever, um, it was a Monday or Tuesday. I was selling a lot. My knee kind of felt weird when I stepped out of my truck. I said, okay. And he said, well, that knee started to swell. And by Thursday, Friday, it was really bad. But uh, I had by Saturday sold about, made about $5,000 or $6,000 in about six days. It's my best week ever. It was my president's club. There's all these like awards that you get for hitting things like this. He said, you know, um, although it was painful throughout the week, I was just, I just had a great mood because in a great mood because I had a lot to be grateful for and nothing could stop me. You know, he's like, I just, it was, it was just the, it was the week. Everything was working. So then he says, uh, you know, his, he hits his best week on Sundays we have off. We do like a team meeting and he goes and uh, to the doctor before the team meeting. And as it turns out, um, he tore his MCL tendon like on Tuesday, stepping out of his car, freak accident. Hmm. And he had his best week ever on a torn MCL. And uh, that blew my mind. And he basically said, hey, is there anything actually wrong with you? <laughs> and the answer is no, there's, I was fine. There's, you know, it was all my head, right? It's all my head. It's, it's an interior, interior, mm -hmm. internal barrier. And I said, you know, life's ten percent what happens, ninety percent how you react to it. You can't control, you know, the weather and all these different things. Many things you can't control, but you can control what you're going to do about it. He said, you know, even though my knee kind of hurt, I just had a choice to make. I could either say, well, that's my excuse to not do well this week and kind of forget the week, kind of write it off. It's like, oh, I was hurt, or I could go make a really awesome story and tell my grandkids about it the rest of my life. You know, and he said that, walked out of the car and I was like, okay, well, I gotta go make a good story. And so I went out and I worked for the next like seven, eight hours, no sales, hour one, no sales, hour two, 
no sales hour three, no sales hour four, no sales hour, hour five, no sales hour six. We get to about the last hour. It's about 8.30, you know, and then that part of Texas central time in the middle of summer, it's still kind of sunny out a little bit. And I, I knock on this single wide trailer and a nice Hispanic family answer the door, very little English. Um, and they let me in and they end up buying some bilingual kiddo books from me. And they send me the next door. It's nine o'clock when I get over there, it's getting dark. And this nice lady in a single wide trailer sits down and buys some apps for me. Um, and I ended the day with two sales. I didn't make a ton of money, um, but I never gave up that day. And that really paved the way for a really good summer and a really good career selling books. And, uh, you know, there's this story of um, the, the Chinese farmer, I think it's what it's called. And uh, this is connecting to the uh, full circle of this story where, you know, there's a, there's a young man who gets on a horse and falls and breaks his leg. And everyone thinks, what was you? Your life's over. And then a few le- years later, there's a draft to the army and everyone who goes to the draft gets, you know, brutally murdered for something, you know, whatever. They all, you know, have a abysmal demise. But because his leg wasn't, he had an injury that he didn't go. And it's all perspective, right? Hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, in the moment, um, things may seem worse than they are and you might be thankful for them happening later. And so if you fast forward to the end of the summer, it's like week nine or 10. Um, this is where Brian comes in. I'm picking him up. You know, because if you're walking, you get dropped off. You walk all day. It's pretty wild. <laughs> Very wild. Uh, I, in fact, I did it one day in the country. I probably walked about 10 miles that day. I said I had like four customers. It was awesome. And I, I met a family with peacocks, and they fed me Oreos, and they bought some books for me. You see some wild stuff out there, Mel. We have, we get to do so many stories. Um, yeah, those peacocks, I thought they were snakes when I was walking up. I picked up a rock. I was like, this is terrifying. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I'm going to pick up Brian. I get there. You know, it's 1030 on a Saturday because it was a 30-minute drive, and I finished at 930 or 10 or whatever. And uh, I get there, and there's this really nice Hispanic family, um, and they had made homemade tortillas and homemade tacos. And I'm eating some tacos with this really nice family. They bought some books from him, you know. And we're having a good time, and we're getting ready to leave. And we see the dad roll out a tire. And we're saying, hey, like, what's the tire for? Like, what's going on? He's like, oh, like, um, our our mother-in-law and uh, my sister um, broke down on the highway just like two miles back. So I was about to go over there and, and uh, help them with their tire. We're like, oh, I just drove past. I saw the blinking lights. I know where that car is at. I'll, we'll just do it for you. I had confidence because I knew how to change a tire <laughs> from week two when I didn't know how to change a tire. And the worst thing ever happened to me. And so this guy was like, okay, he just gives us his spare tire. <laughs> We throw in the trunk and eating some tacos as we drive. We drive away from this wonderful family and uh, we're driving on the highway. We pull over as we see uh, the grandmother and the, and the sister's car or the mother-in-law. And so we, we, we pop over there and uh, it's, again, it's like 11 o'clock. It is, we're exhausted, uh, but we get out and we're like, we're going to help this family because we can, right? We're young. We'll do it. And uh, we roll over like, hey, you know, we just talked to this person, which is the, the brother. And, you know, we're using these names to connect. And they're like, oh, sweet. That's cool. And uh, thanks. And so we just, hey, you got a jack. They have a jack. Um, we start jacking up the car. You know, I do the, the lug nuts. I get those things off. And then I take the thing off. And then Brian puts on uh, the new tire, starts putting it on. And as we're having a chat, it turns out they have kids. We sold educational books for kids. And he's just asking what we were doing. I'm like, oh, yeah, like, here's what we do. And I just, normally you don't just hand them the book, but I just handed them our little sample things. Like, yeah, you look at it or whatever. And then they were asking me things. And I just started doing like my thing, tell them about the books. And they're like, we'll take them. (laughs) (laughs) And they bought $500 worth of books on the highway at 1130 at night after they had popped their tire. And it all happened. I've got my tire money back simply by having the exposure at week two with the failure and it all worked full circle and because of the the inconvenience to me week two we were able to bless somebody week nine or ten and i think that's something that people need to hear all the time it's like it's it might be inconvenient for you now but the fact that you can overcome it's going to help somebody later right and that's uh that's one of the crazier stories i i have many more my brother's got <laughs> a lot too he's met that grew camels for the zoo and anyway go ahead <laughs> that's all pretty cool but still the, the moral of that story is you got fresh homemade tacos and tortillas you need to highlight that part of the story that's the best that's part. right <laughs> 
Yes. Homemade tortillas. So, you got fed awesome. a lot. You know, I, when you got really, yeah, you got really cool with the community. People would give you food almost every night. I, so a lot of times you weren't even having to eat dinner um, at the house, you know, unless you're just trying to be quick or whatever. But yeah, people would give you a lot of food. There's super nice people. And I think that also goes against the, it's countercultural to think that if you're going door to door that you actually get treated well if you treat people well, you know? Um, there's a lot of really, really, there's more nice people in the world than people perceive based on you know, media exposure and things like that. I think that's right. one of the biggest takeaways. People are nice. All right. So let's shift away from your professional life and talk a little bit about your leisure life. Because we, we have, as you alluded to earlier, we've had a, we had a conversation earlier and you told me about something crazy that you've done recently, what I consider crazy. I think all same people should consider it crazy. You ran, <laughs> just for the sake of it, on an obstacle course. Tell, tell me about that. That's, that's one of your hobbies. Yeah, it's a Spartan race. Anybody wants to go with me on a Spartan race, you just let me know. I'm there. It's so fun for me. Um, so I did a, I did a half marathon Spartan race. So what that is, is, you know, it's 35 obstacles from climbing a 20 foot, 30 foot rope in the air. You're just free climbing it to jumping over obstacles to carrying a 75 pound Atlas stone is what it's called to all these different things, right? So you got 35 of those and you're also running about uh, 13 point, is it 13.2? 13.2 miles um, all at the same time. And you're, you're competing and all this kind of stuff. And so um, it's enjoyable, actually, if you uh, train for it, that is, I guess. Um, but, but the reason I do those um, is, is to basically keep myself honest. You know, I think that after you've kind of worked through some of the hard stuff and you've got you know, something established for yourself foundationally, whether it's financially or whatever, whatever success is to you. I just think there's a, an element of complacency, the cynic within, that's the chapter that kind of talks about this, but there's this element of complacency, I think that can um, jump into your life. And, and I'm not saying you never have fun, you know, or anything like that, but I just think that, you know, we tend to sort of let off the gas pedal. Um, if we're not careful, we, we sort of get soft, you know, um, if we don't have something that's challenging us all the time. And so, you know, I think if you're mentally tough in one thing, you're mentally tough in everything. If you start something, you always finish, right? You, you, you build these principles. And so um, one of the principles I'd like to have um, built into my life all the time is that every year is the best year yet. Um, I very much reject um, the, the, the sort of common notion that your high school years or your college years are the best and you ought to make sure those yeah whatever you know like sure i guess if you're pessimistic and <laughs> don't want to make next year better I, I right you know i don't i'm just i just reject it and so um i always want to be doing things that are challenging myself so the spartan race does that for me it's something to look forward to you make a weekend out of it you get to go to a new city um i've never run a half marathon before you get to break a belief barrier it actually wasn't that hard you know, it wasn't that hard. It really wasn't that bad. Um, in fact, I, mile four, and this didn't make me look awesome. It's basically to tell people that it's not that crazy to run 13 miles. I rolled my ankle mile four hard. It hurt so bad. Um, had to retie my shoe, laced it up. I ran nine miles on a, on a hurt ankle and did like 20 more obstacles, you know, and it's, it was all a head game. You know, I'm a big David Goggins fan. I include him in the book. Just a little bit of story of him losing hundreds of pounds, becoming a Navy SEAL. And, you know, it's just, it really is. A lot of things are just in our head. Um, and so I just want to make sure that I'm confronting those problems with potential. I don't want those problems that have the potential to hold me back later, right? Um, stop me um, from, from impacting people and helping more, more people. Just like if I had said, you know what, screw this job. I, my car's broken down. I don't have money for this tire, yada, yada, right? Um, I'm going home. Never would have met and helped that family. Never would have learned those lessons, right? So I just don't want to be the person who you know, gives up at the wrong time, right? Or does whatever. You know, I, I want to just do those types of things. And I just think it uh, makes you a better person. And I just think if, if we don't have something to push ourselves towards a goal, you know, then going to the gym starts to become meaningless. You know, going for a run becomes meaningless. Taking care of your health becomes meaningless. Um, and I, just, I think I want to be a person that if, if God ever says, hey, come go do this, I don't want my physical health to be the reason I say no, right, at the end of the day. You know, I don't want that. I don't want my physical health to be a limitation if, if it's at all controllable. You know, God forbid something crazy happened and I get in a car crash. Who knows, right? Like that's not controllable maybe, but like if I can control it, I'm going to do everything to the best of my ability and uh, not, not leave 
um, a moment of regret. That's that's the goal, right? You know. So there's a there's a study at the very end of the book that kind of wraps everything together in a little story. But uh, there's there's someone uh, there was a book written, and this this woman uh, interviews um, people in their 70s 80s about you know their life, and they ask them certain questions. And the number one thing that that came up is that people regretted not doing what they wish they would have. You know, and so I don't want to look back and say, man, I could have run a marathon, I could have done a half marathon, but I've gotten so far in one direction that now I can't. You know, now I still believe that you can, regardless of your age, if you're willing to put in the effort. You know, I know 70 year olds that play soccer and they do pretty good, <laughs> you know, um, and that and that all full circle comes back to those limiting beliefs of the sand flea experiment. You know, if we if we've hit the this certain level for so long, we kind of believe that's the limit. But as it turns out, there's always ways to uh, to overcome it. In fact, we're, we're going to do this thing called the Best Year Yet Conference. So I'd like to start doing annually in Knoxville um, for local entrepreneurs and small business owners. And uh, we're having a speaker there who um, went for 400 pounds to 220 in his 50s, I believe, 40s, 50s. So, you know, anything's wow. pretty much possible. Just got to meet people who have done it. Be friends with them. They'll start influencing you, right? Well, that's all great, great information, Joe. I appreciate that. So as we wind down this conversation, I just want to give you a chance to sort of send a shout out to anybody you want to want to say hi to or, or thank you to or whatever you want to do. This is a chance to just have somebody's name mentioned on air. What? Shout out, shout out. Um, um, okay, okay, okay. There's a lot of people I'd want to thank for lots of things, but we'll just, I'm just going to thank my wife, Danielle Ignis, for uh, inspiring me to write the book. She wrote a book called Lily's Story, um, total nonprofit book. Um, she actually like raised money for it, and it's a story about a girl named Lily who goes to the foster care system to help kids in the foster care um, basically process their emotions, not feel so lonely. And uh, she sells them on Amazon, Lily's Story. Um, to raise money and she donates it to a kid in need every Christmas. Pretty powerful stuff. So she wrote that book and I was like, oh, I got to be an author now too. So that uh, <laughs> helped me to want to start writing. So uh, she's she is my rock, my foundation. She's a pretty amazing woman and uh, challenges me to always be kinder and uh, focus on helping more people. So shout out to her. Um, go Danielle. I hope she go hears Danielle. this. I'm sure We're, she'll hear this one day. All right, I'll I'm, team Dan, I'm team Danielle now too. Team Joe too. I'll be team for yeah, both. <laughs> there you go all right so, so that's it for our conversation today um our guest today has been businessman and author and thanks to the inspiration of his wife danielle he's an author um joe ignis so thank you for joining us joe yes thanks so much for having me no i've enjoyed having you here today please come back when you've written your second book or made your first billion dollars whichever comes first <laughs> So, <laughs> so that that's it for today's episode. Join us again next time for another storytelling journey. Until then, don't forget to shine some light wherever you go. That was another edition of Stories from Real Life with your host, Melvin E. Edwards. Join us again next time for more stories about more things than you can imagine. Some of those true stories may even be about real life. See you next time.